Now friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We're on the fourth week, I believe, of a, of a short summer study in the book of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. And if you're looking for it, it's just prior to then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your Bible. Malachi is about what God cares about. And uh, in this book, we see what's on his heart for his people. We've seen his first concern uh, that his people be assured of his love. That's Malachi 1, 2 through 5. He wants us to know that he loves us. And then beginning last week at chapter 1, verse 6, uh, we began the second major concern, which actually tonight is the second half of it. It's one major whole as God tells us he cares about his glory and how his people worship him and give him honor but especially how the priests the spiritual leaders of that day how they led the people in honoring him or rather how they didn't and so uh, last week while I, was, while I was away, Dr. Bruce opened up chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, where God began his accusations against mainly the priests, but also the people. And tonight in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the passage continues now as God speaks directly and specifically to the priests only with a warning. He oppresses, uh, speaks to them directly here because As went the priest, so went the people. As goes the leadership, so goes the people of God. So what does God have to say to these priests? And that's what we'll consider tonight. What does that have then to do with us? Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. And now, O priests... This command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. 
You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Amen. This is God's eternal and everlasting word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Let's look to him in prayer and ask him to teach us. Father in heaven, we bow before you, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory. You are far greater than we know, than we have ever considered or honored. But we we ask that you in mercy would, would come and in grace draw near and that you would teach us your word. You would help us to understand it rightly, that you would keep my lips from error, that you would grant the meditations of our hearts to be acceptable in your sight through our Lord Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. We pray you would do good to us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A church newsletter went out, tongue-in-cheek, of course, suggesting for church members who were unhappy with their pastor that they should simply send a copy of this letter to six other churches who are tired of their ministers, then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list and add your name to the bottom of the list. And in one week, you will receive 16,436 ministers and one of them should be a dandy. Have faith in this letter. One man broke the chain and got his old minister back. (laughs) You ever get a letter like that, one of those chain letters? Now, before any of you start a letter like that about your pastor, uh, let's be as informed as possible about what kind of spiritual leaders we should be aiming to be and looking for in our church leadership. You at least want to be well informed before you go looking elsewhere. The background of this whole text is the idea of covenant. You heard that word come up again and again. They have corrupted my covenant with Levi. And so we need to, before we divide the text, we just need to consider that word. The priests have corrupted the covenant, but God will be faithful to the covenant. What's a covenant? Um, Lord willing, Sonny and Tim will be married uh, just a couple weeks from now. And here's part of the vow they will take. Perhaps those of you who are married took this vow or something close to it. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful spouse. In sickness and in health, in poverty and in riches, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. You perhaps, maybe you didn't realize you did, but you did. You covenanted with your spouse. What does this mean? What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding mutual relationship with life and death consequences and blessings and responsibilities as part of the relationship. That's one definition anyway. It's a good one. They, they make a covenant with one another in marriage. It's going to be this mutual relationship. We're going to live together. We're going to be friends, Lord willing. We're going to be lifelong husband and wife. 
And, and there are life and death consequences in that covenant. You, you say, I will do this as long as we both shall live or till death parts us. That's the ideal you promise. And there are blessings on the one hand and responsibilities on the other. And they're pretty obvious. They're tremendous blessings of having somebody say, I promise every day to wake up and love you. Whether you make me rich or poor, whether you get sick or you're always healthy, whether I'm joyful or sorrowful, I, I promise to love you and I'll be faithful to you. And, and then likewise, there's responsibility. It's reciprocal in a marriage. Now, uh, in covenants with God and his people, the responsibilities and blessings aren't exactly reciprocal. <laughs> he gives all the blessings. He needs nothing from us. And he calls us to responsibility, which he enables and helps us to carry out. But so he enters into covenant with his people. He's entered into covenant with all his people throughout all history. And he's entered into covenant with Christians. Here, it speaks of the covenant with Levi. This was a specific and particular covenant he made with the the tribe of Levi. And they became uh, the Levitical priests and had a special place in God's plan in the community. The blessings of this covenant in verse 5 were life and peace. And the responsibility was that he should fear me, God said. You should fear me. And Levi did, it says. He did what God had commanded. He had did what he was supposed to do. So now at the end of verse 8, God accuses these priests, the descendants of the Levitical priests he spoke so highly of and he accuses them of corrupting corrupting this covenant and we're going to see how they did that but he assures them that God will be faithful to the covenant significantly and yet frighteningly he will be faithful to bring the covenant curses due for covenant breaking Now, you'd have to go to Deuteronomy 33 and Deuteronomy 28 and the book of Leviticus to unpack all that. We don't have time to look at it. But God is going to be faithful. He'll be either faithful in grace or faithful in judgment, but he'll be faithful to the relationship. And so this is what covenant is, and it's the background of what goes on here. And we want to have that in our minds as we consider then what ought these spiritual leaders, these priests, what ought they what ought they have done? that they didn't do? What did they do that they shouldn't have done? How had they failed? And what did God promise to them? And in the midst of all of that, what does that mean for any of us who are in spiritual leadership of any kind on this side of the cross? And what does it mean for any of us who sit under spiritual leaders? So we want to think about all these things then. So in the first place then, what should the spiritual leaders have done? And he gives them a positive example. It's not the first place to begin in the text. He gives them the positive example of Levi. And we can enumerate four or five things that they ought to have done as spiritual leaders. They ought to, number one, and you see it in verse two, they ought to have listened to the Lord. Look, look, at, look at how it begins, chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, then this is what's going to happen. What's he saying? Listen to me is what he's saying. And they ought to have listened to him, and they haven't been listening to him. And they should. 
And, and that's the first thing we need to say, that spiritual leaders ought to listen to the Lord. And if they haven't been listening, they ought to be teachable and correctable to be brought back to listen to the Lord. That is a mark of spiritual maturity, friends. It's a mark, a mark of, of maturity in life that you can take admonition and rebuke. That you can be called out and then own up and turn back. It's the immature Christian who acts like an immature child. One that you would expect to act this way. Who throws a tantrum every time they're corrected or rebuked. But it's a mark of maturity. Not that you are perfect. That's not the mark of Christian maturity. But it is a mark of maturity that you are correctable. Now, I hasten to say, let's not all test the pastor's spiritual maturity this week by uh, correcting me all at once, okay? Please uh, measure it out uh, so that uh, I can take it. But uh, anyway, these are spiritual leaders and they ought to have been listening to the Lord and they haven't been. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. They should have revered God from the heart, feared him even. He's a great king. Verse 5, God says, and Levi did fear me. That was positive. He did what he was supposed to do. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. My glory was on his heart is what God is saying. And he cared about that. He cared for my glory. That's what they ought to have done. And in the third place, they should have been careful with God's word, with doctrine, with teaching. Notice in verse 6, in a, in a positive statement, it says, True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. You see that there? There was nothing deceitful or unjust or false on his lips, but he was careful with God's word. He, he wasn't full of his own ideas <coughs> or his own opinions. And he didn't just spout off whatever was in his own heart and tell you about his own experience, but he aimed to faithfully and diligently study God's word, know it, read it, explain it, and apply it to the people. This is what the Levites did. They were servants of the word of God, working hard to understand and communicate the scriptures. That's what they did. And they couldn't be bribed or bullied into saying what the people wanted them to say. No threat, not money, could keep them from speaking the truth. True instruction, reliable teaching, verse 7, was in their mouth, and the lips of the priest preserved knowledge, and the people sought instruction from the priest. That isn't what's been happening. That's what's supposed to happen. Then in the fourth place at verse 6, they not only that, but more than that, middle of verse 6, it says positively, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. In the first place, he walked with God. That's the language of intimacy. It's the language of relationship. It's the language of living in harmony with God and relating to him. In other words, Levi wasn't just all about head theology, about correct teaching. That was important, not to be downplayed. 
but he, but he lived in light of the truth that he knew. Uh, he had personal interaction with God, not just in public ministry, but in private. And I thought I'd add here that for any and all of us who at times feel cold in our devotion to God and feel weak in our walks with the Lord, we, we should talk to the Lord about that. He's already fully aware of where our hearts are. There's no surprise when we're cold and distant from him. Uh, as, as William Cooper said it, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore, oh, for grace to love thee more. Now ask God for this, appeal for God. But we can be honest with the Lord. He's not unafraid of where, he's not unaware of where our hearts are. And so they walked with God rightly. But they, they also walked, it says, with God in peace and uprightness. There was integrity in their living, their lifestyle. It's, it's not that they never sinned. It's not that they themselves had no need of the gospel or the sacrifices that they ministered for others. It's not like, oh, well, we need to atone for the sins of the people, but not for the sins of the minister or priest. It's not that. They were upright, not sinless. They weren't guilty of scandalous rebellions, the the kind that make the newspaper, the, the kind that tear churches apart. Listen. This is a positive description of what spiritual leadership ought to be. When leaders hold God in awe and they listen to him and his glory is on their hearts and they're careful with his word and they seek to explain it but also live it, God does great things with that. God uses them to influence others. And that's what happened here. You find it then... uh, at, uh, at verse 8. Uh, sorry, not verse 8. Well, it's here, friends. Yes, end of verse 6. They walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. In other words, the ministry then was effective. God made it effective, but it was effective at turning others to God and turning... Uh, people away from sin and so this is a very positive description of what spiritual leadership ought to be like and how had they failed how had in contrast what had they been like we heard a partial description last week from chapter 1 verses 6 through 14 just to hit the highlights of that go back and read it sometime the priests were the main problem in israel they knew what god required but they didn't enforce it And what they did was they took unacceptable offerings. Uh, They they took not perfect and unblemished animal sacrifices, but rather they took, oh, roadkill. They took animals that had been slaughtered by other animals, lame animals, sick animals, animals that people had stolen and then said, I'll bring this to the Lord's house and offer it. What a big deal. And and this is what they did. It It would be like... Uh, going to a wedding reception and finding out that the, the menu is made up of roadkill, weak old roadkill, and, and the people telling you, well, it's good enough for these people. And that's what they were doing with God. Oh, it's, it's good enough for God. It doesn't really matter that God said you must offer unblemished and perfect animals. 
And, and listen, friends, why, why does that really, I mean, why does that matter so much? The animal's going to die one way or the other. Why did it matter that they be perfect? Friends, this strikes at the very heart of both ancient Judaism and Christianity. It had to be perfect. Otherwise, it would obscure the glory of Christ. Because God has said, you need a perfect substitute in your place because you're not perfect. And Christ, the Lamb of God who is unblemished, was going to come and be your perfect sacrifice. And it, it spoke falsely about him to say, well, it really doesn't matter what we offer. No, it needed to be perfect. It was belittling of the work of Jesus, the work that he would accomplish. And so that's not what they were doing. They were taking unacceptable offerings. And they were treating the work, frankly, that, that like it was beneath them. They, they sniffed at it. They grew weary of it. They consider it a huge burden instead of a great blessing and privilege to minister on God's behalf. And God said to them in chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, he said to them, you know, I'd, I'd rather somebody here just shut the door, locked it, and we just closed up shop because this worship is worthless. That would be preferable. That's what God said to them. Now in chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, the indictments just keep coming relentlessly. I mean, look at some of the other things he says. Not, not only, of course, as he said to them, you haven't been listening to, them, to me, verse 1, so quit covering your ears and start listening. And you haven't been honoring me in your hearts. We looked at that. They ought to have been. They have, in fact, turned aside from the way is the language. If you go down verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction and you have corrupted the covenant of Levi. They had quit following the Lord genuinely. They, they weren't pursuing a relationship with him at all. And then on top of that, what were they doing? End of verse 9, they were showing partiality in their instruction. That's how it, it ends. Uh, what does that mean there? Uh, they were showing partiality in their instruction. It means this, that the priests were treating the word of God in the same way that they were treating the sacrifices. Which was what? They were saying to people, well, you know, why don't you give the sacrifice that keeps the most money in our pockets? And they were teaching that way too, in order to gain the most money. They were playing to their audience. They didn't want to step on anybody's toes. They just said, peace peace when there was no peace or they were like as the prophet Micah in Micah 3 verse 11 puts it when he says the heads of Jerusalem give judgment for a bribe its priests teach for hire its prophets practice divination for money so they weren't like the popular and effective London preacher of last century G. Campbell Morgan during his ministry which was very effective there were all kinds of offers for him to come to different places uh, to be a minister and a guy named John Wanamaker a rich merchant in Philadelphia offered to build Morgan a million dollar church this is like early 1900s if he would just come from London and be the pastor there in Philadelphia and Morgan turned him down 
something the wealthy Wanamaker was not accustomed to people doing. I am God's man, said Morgan, and if I did that, then I would become John Wanamaker's man. And so he didn't. And so uh, these priests were being indicted for showing partiality. Maybe a rich man would come and the rich man would say, you know, I've got this lamb. And the priest would say, I think it'll be okay. By the way, is there a party at your house next week? You know, social invitation, profit to me, whatever. So that's the kind of ministry that was carried on. And then in the last place, in the middle of verse 8, you see the final thing, that they caused many people to stumble. That's, that was the effect of their ministry. Many others stumbled. And we might ask the question, are the sins of teachers and leaders more grievous than the sins of others? And the answer to that is in the Christian church, yes. Not necessarily because the sin itself is worse, but because its evil is increased by the position the person holds and the negative influence they have on others because of their leadership position. It's more grievous for the priests to sin than for the people to sin because when the priests sin, they cause many other people to stumble. This This whole passage here caused the Puritan Matthew Henry to say, there is not a more despicable animal upon the face of the earth than a profane, wicked, scandalous minister. And so that's what these leaders had done, and they had failed in their responsibility. And I want to pause and say, before we get to what God did, we want to pause and and recognize this. To those who have been hurt by the failings of scandalous Christian leadership, you need to hear this. And and if you're tempted and have been tempted to reject Christianity or you have friends who've been rejecting Christianity on account of the scandalous Christian leadership they have seen, you need to hear this. God hates hypocrisy 10,000 times more than any one of us does. He says, I will spread dung on their faces about these priests. So I would say this, don't let, don't let their evil keep you from following Jesus. Jesus isn't like them. And don't let hypocritical Christian leaders perhaps from your past, drag you with them to destruction by rejecting the Savior because of them. Don't do that, friends. So what is it that God will do? He will do two things. He will call and he will curse. Back to verses 1 and 2. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of us, then I will send The curse. Notice in the first place, before he gets to curse, he calls them. He calls them to repentance in light of his warning. That's what he's doing here. There's there's room for repentance, he says. He's calling them back to himself and back to a fresh start. They've already failed and he reaches out his hands to them. That's what he's doing. This is amazing grace, friends. 
And this is the positive aim of all God's threats. You know that Christian faith is believing the promises. It's also trembling at the threatenings. Some people think Christian faith, um, you know, is stoic before the the, uh, frightening curses and assurances of judgment. Some people think, well, you know, if you believe in Jesus, then, then you, you think lightly or you don't think about those things at all. But actually, Christian faith is believing the promises of Jesus and it is trembling at the warnings. You take them seriously. You don't want them for yourself. You're thankful they're not for you, but it is an awesome thing here, friends. But, but the warnings have a positive purpose. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 31 and 3, the prophet said, "Why God said to his people, Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Threat of death with a positive purpose. Turn and live. That's grace. And it means there's second chances. If you have been a failure at much of the Christian life and your own responsibilities in Christian leadership, perhaps even in your own home. But he not only calls them to repentance, he does assure them that he will, if they do not repent, he will curse. That curse has four aspects at least. Notice very quickly, God says, uh, end of verse 2, he says, I will curse your blessings. Now, some take that to mean that, you know, the good things of life they've enjoyed in their material possessions are just going to, they're either going to rot, fall apart, be unenjoyable, whatever. God's going to curse those things. But the other way to look at this, friends, is to recognize that God is saying this to these public ministers of the gospel in the Old Testament. He's going to curse their blessings. What was it a a minister was to do? He was to bless His whole ministry was to be a blessing to the people. And God is saying, I'm going to frustrate that. I'm going to make your work futile. I'm going to thwart your ministry. That may be what God is saying when he says, I will curse your blessings. And then he says, I will rebuke your seed. That's the next phrase. Now that word seed can be taken agriculturally to mean, you know, crops and produce. And God may be saying, you know, there's going to be a time of, of, of drought and famine, and that's going to hurt you financially and with, with the lack of food. That, that could be the kind of curse he's talking about, but seed is also taken as the word for offspring. And he may be saying, I will rebuke your offspring, which for a priest would have come as a heavy curse. Why? Because perhaps what he's saying is here that their, their children will not follow them into this privileged position. The priesthood was hereditary. It was through the Levitical tribe. And God may be saying to them, you're not going to have descendants who will become priests. Or I will cut them off and they won't become priests. That may be what he's assuring them. And then he says, I will, verse 3, very graphically spread dung on your faces. This he's describing um, the innards of of the animal sacrifices, the guts, the intestines, the bowels, and their contents that all would have been taken away, taken outside the camp 
and burned and not offered on the altar. And what he is saying is this, I will take that and I will smear it on your face. And that would have been humiliating on the one hand, but more than that, what would have been the effect of that for a priest? It would have made the priest unclean and unfit to carry out their public ministry. It would have meant the removal from their ability to do what they were called to do. God may be saying that. I'm going to let the filth of your sin cling to you and it will make you unserviceable on my, at my altar. And then, more than that, he says, last phrase there in verse 3, I will remove them outside the camp with the dung and, and you shall be taken away with it. It is the dung. You'll go out with the dung. Where? To the dung hill. And have no place in the temple. In other words, God is saying to them, look, if you think so little of serving God at his altar in the temple, then then I will put you out and away from the altar and out with the garbage. So God warned them of his curse and he gave them time to repent and they didn't. And it is a historical fact. It is a historical fact that the whole system of temple worship and altar sacrifices made by the priesthood in Israel have ceased. Now it's true that it was the eternal plan of God that they should cease, that the animal sacrifices would end and the fulfillment of them in Christ would come when the great final sacrifice would come. But he came not only to give us something better, but he came to end something That was bad. And so we see in this text that God honors those who honor him and he despises those who despise him and he causes to be despised those who despise him. That's what God will do. But that, my friends, is not the end of the story. And very briefly, let's close with this because that is not the end of the story. Because here's where the rubber beats the road for all of us. You're a religious leader, say, say a teacher, a minister, a pastor, a missionary. Maybe you're a parent and you're supposed to lead your own children. And you feel like an utter failure in serving the Lord. Your heart hasn't been in it. You haven't been listening to the Lord. You haven't been in awe of God. You have had wrong doctrine and taught wrong things to people. You haven't been walking closely to the Lord. You felt like you've done no good for anybody and you feel like you deserve a curse. I don't know anybody in Christian ministry that hasn't felt that way at times. Most of the men I know wake up on Monday morning and they want to quit the ministry. They get back in the office on Tuesday and they start studying the Bible and it's all worth it again. But here's what you need to see. Where was Jesus crucified? Jesus, your great high priest, the perfect priest and perfect sacrifice, where was he crucified? He was taken outside the camp. He was taken outside the walls of Jerusalem to where Golgotha, a garbage dump. That's where he was crucified. He was taken out with the filth where, and I mean no offense, where you belong and where I belong. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 11 and 12 says this, for the bodies of of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So there's this, friends. He became unclean so that in him you could be made clean. That is your only hope. Turn to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you and bless you and we need you and we thank you. Help our souls to rest in you. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing the Lord's praise.